0: On November 6, 1991, Eric Riddick was hanging out in front of his friend's house in West Philadelphia. At the same time, just two blocks away, Eric's childhood friend William Catlett was fatally shot in what police believe was a drug dispute, and all eyewitnesses implicated a man named Edward Peanut Johnson. But this was Philadelphia in the 90s, where official misconduct was the norm and one shouldn't have expected investigations to follow the actual evidence. So despite all the signs pointing toward Peanut Johnson and a rock-solid alibi, Eric was charged with the unmotivated murder of his friend solely on a coerced statement from a man named Sean Stevenson. So when none of the alibi witnesses were even called to testify, the trial reached a Predictable outcome, sending Eric away for life in prison. In 1999, Stevenson finally recanted his bogus testimony, stating that he had been under pressure from both the victim's friends and the district attorney to maintain the lie. However, Eric was not even alerted to the recantation until 2003. The time elapsed made this earth-shattering evidence inadmissible. With the key to his freedom rendered useless, Eric's appeals were repeatedly denied. It took the support of Meek Mill, students at Georgetown, the election of a new district attorney with a real conviction integrity unit, and almost an additional two decades to finally set Eric Riddick free. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom.
3: you can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
5: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, of course, I'm your host. And today, well, if there's a heaviness in my voice, it's because this is a heavy story we're about to tell you, the story of Eric Riddick's wrongful conviction. And one of the reasons I've wanted to tell it is because so many people that I respect have for years made this a priority. This case stands out and this person stands out. And so without further ado, Eric Riddick, as I often say, I'm happy you're here, but I'm sorry you're here because of what it took to get you here.
3: Thank you for having me. Right off the back, I want to definitely thank you personally, you and your network for giving voice to the voiceless, bringing light to these issues. So thank you on behalf of myself and um, those that are still fighting for freedom.
0: No, that means the world to me. And, you know, for our listeners, I'm sure that you won't be surprised to hear that this is a Philadelphia case. There was an incredible pull quote in the article about Tony Wright's wrongful conviction case in Rolling Stone magazine, where it said that in the 90s, a black man had a better chance of getting justice in Philadelphia, Mississippi than Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But just quickly, before this happened, what was your life like? I was a young
3: guy in the streets of Southwest Philadelphia where I lived all my life. I was living in poverty, in an impoverished area, an area that was uh, was a lot of good things, a lot of beautiful things, but it was also a lot of violence, a lot of drugs, a lot of mental health issues. For me, because I had both parents in the house, I was being taught and educated from two perspectives. My parents always told me to do the right thing, always told me to go to school, but I chose to also hang out with the guys in the streets hooky school, all those things that made me susceptible to being wrongly accused.
0: The fact is you didn't do this crime and it should have been really obvious to everyone from the beginning that you didn't do it, but your case has so many of the hallmarks that we see in wrongful conviction cases. It's incompetent defense, lying witness. I mean, there was only one accuser and no evidence evidence. and no alibi witnesses called, even though there were alibi witnesses Mm -hmm. and official misconduct. Let's go back to it. So this crime- was your friend, William Catlett, who was fatally shot in West Philadelphia in November of 1991. So take us back to that terrible night when this happened.
3: Well, November 6th, 1991, approximately like between 5.30 and 6.30, I was on 50th and Trinity Street, two blocks away from where the tragedy happened on 50th and Belmar. During the course of that week, it was a lot of things going on with different individuals in that area, dealing with the drug activities around there, We was on 58th and Trinity Street. Myself, a guy named Lewis Jordan, Jeff Dawson, and Justine Dawson and Tamakwa Jordan, all of whom was my alibi witnesses that I gave to the homicide detective. And as I told them in my statement, once we heard the gunshots, myself, Lewis Jordan, and Jeff Dawson begin to walk towards where the gunshots at. When we got to Belmar, We've seen that it was a crowd on the corner of 58th
0: and Belmar, and that William
3: Catlett was shot.
0: Okay, so the police begin their investigation, and many of the eyewitnesses were talking about this guy, Edward Peanut Johnson, right? Which was a lead that they inexplicably ignored. I still can't understand why, but when they connected with Sean Stevenson, he went on to say that he saw the shooter up on a balcony about 15 feet above William Catlett, and He described the shooter as a skinny black male in his early 20s with a leather jacket like Eric Riddick's, but he didn't see the shooter's face. A day later, though, in a second interview, he says that you were the shooter and that you were the guy that shot William Catlett from the fire escape with a rifle that was about two feet long. Now, it came out much later that he was under pressure from both friends of the victim and from the DA to implicate you in the shooting. But we'll get to that in a little while. So what happens next?
3: To make a long story short, on the 8th, I heard that the homicide detectives was looking for me. So my mother and my father, they drove me down to the homicide detective, 8th and Reese. And I gave a statement basically stating that I had nothing to do with the crime. I was two blocks away. And here's the people that can confirm where I was at. At the exact time, we actually was on the porch and we heard the gunshots. A detective named Paul Rich began to try to manipulate me. He said that he knew I didn't do it. He said that he knew who did it. He named the individuals who he said did it. But he was saying that being though I know them, that he wanted me to say that I know that they did it. Basically, I was like, no, I'm not going to put myself somewhere where I wasn't. So then he got hostile. He started saying that he's going to charge me with the murder. This after he acknowledged that he knew I didn't have nothing to do with it. So we went back and forth. He tried to use intimidation. And every time he did that, he stopped recording. He stopped writing down the things that I was saying when I was coming to give the statement. So after that didn't work, I signed my statement, stating where I was at, stating the people that can verify where I'm at, and they let me go. But let me rewind back first. One of the things that Detective Paul Rich said when he was getting hostile that I wasn't saying what he wanted me to say, and he said, before it's all over, I'm going to charge you with this murder. He said, I don't care about the individual that got like." He said, I just need a body for a body. This is exact words to me. You're going to get convicted. You're going to appeal it. But by the time your case is overturned, you're going to be old, gray, and broke down.
0: You know, that's that's just really freaking sinister. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's going to stick with me for a long time. The body for a body, that line. It's as if they're saying, yeah, just anybody will do, right? It's like, this is what gets me, right? Why wouldn't we want the person who actually committed the murder of your friend to be brought to justice, if for no other reason than that, so they don't go and kill somebody else. Right? I mean, everyone kept saying like the same name, right? Edward Peanut Johnson. But they followed through on their threat to you. And sure enough, you were arrested.
3: January 10th, I was arrested on the corner of 58th and Trinity Street. They took me to homicide detectives and they charged me with murder.
0: And so we get to the trial. And I just want to give a brief summary, which I think should shock everybody and frankly should piss everybody off, because the prosecution's case, they let's face it, they had no case. So what they do? They relied solely on Stevenson's eyewitness testimony, which, by the way, had changed a number of times and then was eventually recanted. Stevenson said he saw you fire a rifle from a fire escape, but the medical examiner's ballistic report with the autopsy, which breaks down each bullet wound and the trajectory of each bullet, says clearly that none of them traveled in a downward direction. So, Eric, I don't know if you're a magician, but you'd have to be in order to shoot someone who's on ground level from 15 feet up And not have the bullets traveling downward. I mean, it's obviously impossible. Did your lawyer bring that up at all?
3: During trial, he didn't present the physical evidence dealing with the ballistics. He cross examined that evidence, but he didn't pull out or extrapolate the exculpatory elements within the ballistics with the course called incontrovertible evidence, which is scientific evidence that's proven this one accusation to be scientifically implausible. You know, he never brought that out. But also, the greater tragedy in my lawyer was his ineffectiveness regarding the alibi witnesses. And his opening statement, three times he promised the jury that he was going to present three alibi witnesses to refute the state's one witness. So through the whole trial, the fact finders is waiting for him to keep his promise. Because opening statements are important. You're setting the stage for your defense. And he told the jury in three places in this opening statement that he was going to present three alibi witnesses stating that I was elsewhere at the exact time of the crime. And when the trial was over, me and him argued because he was saying he wasn't going to present a case. And I told him, no, present my alibi witnesses. They was there waiting to testify. After that, me and him arguing about it, he turned to me and said, OK, OK, I'm going to do it. And then he looked at the judge and said, Your Honor, we rest. I'm sitting there listening, and I heard him say it, but I didn't really understand until I was handcuffed and taken back to the holding cell. And then it hit me. He just disregarded
0: what I told him to do. I mean, this guy, he literally just sent you down the river, just processed you in like your life didn't matter at all. And it's like in a certain way, he bears as much blame as the people who framed you in the first place because it was up to him. Yes. So now he rests his case. He throws you to the wolves. The jury goes out. What were you thinking when they went out? Did you still think that there was still a chance that justice would be served? Yes, I did. In my
3: mind, in my naive mind at the time, I was saying to myself, there's no way in the world that they're going to convict me on a crime that I did not do. But I didn't know the depths of the defects in the criminal justice system, but also I didn't understand the language because I actually was listening to my lawyer, and I remember going back to the holding cell, saying, "My lawyer, you know, he killing it," because I didn't understand the language. And I still was saying to myself, "There's nowhere in the world that they're going to convict me, not just for a crime that I didn't commit, but a friend of mine's." I couldn't fathom that. First, but they deliberated for three days. They came back and said he was deadlocked, and they couldn't come to a conviction. Judge Paul Ribner turned around and gave them the most corrupt instructions in his own record. He put a burden on them outside of the facts. And he said, listen, we've been here three days deliberating on this case. If y'all cannot come to an agreement, then it's going to cost the taxpayers more money. It's going to cost them more time in the courts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ten minutes later, they came back with a first degree murder conviction.
0: This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG pro bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's legal access program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide.
3: It's very heavy to hold and wake up with a life sentence on your back, to use the bathroom with that life sentence on your back, to go to the shower, to walk around every day, all day for decades. With that weight on your back, it's the heaviest feeling that a person can imagine. For me, I never experienced that personally because I never thought that I was not coming home. I said to myself, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. You know, it fueled me. I was blessed to have strong parents and they passed that strength off to me to be able to survive in those arduous situations, hard situations. So that's what I did. I occupied my mind, I stayed in physical shape, I made a decision to learn everything that I can learn. I turned my incarceration into like a university, right? I was educated by a lot of powerful lifers that had rehabilitated and reformed themselves and they taught me the law, they taught me how to be a man, because I was angry and I got into fights and I wanted to hurt people just like these young guys out here now. And it was lifers that could still speak the language that I understood that taught me how to deal with it rationally. They gave me another option. And they taught me the law, they taught me how to understand the politics that the law was functioning in. You know, I learned the law and I fought for 30 years every day. When I had cellmates, they said I used to wake up in the middle of my sleep talking about uh, Commonwealth versus Santana states that when incontrovertible evidence it's repugnant to human testimony. You reject the human testimony. <laughs> they said, I used to wake up in my sleep litigating. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mean, listen, there's so much potential. Look, every time I visit a prison, you know, I always come out feeling like there's more humanity inside those walls than I see out here. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Troy Coleman's calling me on the other phone.
3: Oh, wow. Let me actually
0: pick this up while we're talking. I'll put him oh, on speaker. Wow. Hold on. I don't know <laughs> how I could do this.
3: Wow. A individual at SCI Somerset. Wow, you not private.
4: It will be recorded and may be monitored. Good morning, hey, sir How are you?
0: Hey, Troy, I'm actually recording a podcast with Eric Riddick right now. We were talking <laughs> about you earlier. Oh, yeah? So we got oh, you yeah. on oh, the speakerphone yeah. through the microphone. Yeah. But he can he can hear you, but he can't talk back to you. Tell, He's on the other side. Tell him I said hello. But he says hello. He's thinking about you. We all are. And uh telling him I said my greetings
1: in regards. And
0: go ahead, do, yo, do what you do. Okay, got it. Call me later. I mean, what the fuck, right? That's amazing, and I know you know Troy really well, and worked on his case while you were still inside, and we actually covered his case recently, and we're we're just hoping for justice for Troy Coleman.
3: Can I say something real quick? Yeah, on that. This is the thing. Even with that case right there, the Troy Coleman case, the victim in his case, Kevin Jones was a friend of mine. I grew up with the whole family, very close friends of mine. And just me even offering assistance is testimony to the injustice of even that case. Some of the family probably wouldn't even like the fact that I'm helping. But at the end of the day, right is right and wrong
0: is wrong. Absolutely. And you know, another guy that you knew inside, who we also had the privilege of interviewing here, who has spoken very highly of you in the past, is Meek Mill.
3: I was just talking to Meek earlier. When he came to prison, he was with me for those five months. He said, when I go home, I promise you, I'm going to talk about your case. I'm going to advocate for you. And when he went home, he did everything that he could. Georgetown dealt with me because he was sitting on a podcast about his case, and he brought up my case. Dan Sepian and NBC, they was introduced to my case. Desiree Perez, she took me through the whole Rock Nation. All of these individuals is like family to me now, based on Meek Mill introducing my case and the egregiousness of it to them. You know, he's an artist Yeah, he's financially stable, but he stepped out of his comfort zone and reached back. And just his case opened the door for a lot of other cases dealing with the corrupt cops. It wasn't just my case.
0: So then let's get to the post-conviction litigation. Because first of all, all the way back in 1999, that's a long time ago, the prosecution's only eyewitness, Stevenson, recanted his statement in an affidavit. He stated that he was under pressure from friends of the victim and from the district attorney to identify you. Now, at the time, Pennsylvania law, the Post-Conviction Relief Act, required that new evidence, get ready for this, be filed within 60 days to be considered on appeal. That's insane. And you didn't physically receive a copy of the recantation affidavit for another 4 years years after that, which was 2003. So, of course, this meant that by the time you filed for post conviction relief, it was way too late and it couldn't even be included. Again, what the hell? Where is justice in that? Okay, so his recantation continued to be inadmissible, which meant that your repeated attempts to prove your innocence in the following years were routinely denied. The PCRA statute is
3: literally an obstruction of justice. No statute have the power to subvert the concept of justice. The foundation of the judicial system is in the preamble of the United States Constitution. We, the people, to form a more perfect union and to establish justice. So now any statute that come after that is supposed to actualize justice, not subordinate justice. The legislation cannot pass a statute that obstructs evidence from coming in that can prove innocence, because they surely wouldn't do it if it proved guilt. Right. right? The politics of corruption, culture corruption, is nullifying those foundational principles that really can't be justified. But that's what happens. That's why people is in prison under wrongful convictions, And that's what makes Larry Krasnick administration so damn powerful. Larry Krasnick, Patricia Cummins, for him to get up there and identify a culture of corruption. And I'm going to say this from being in prison and seeing it with my own eyes. I'm telling you today here on the record that there are thousands of individuals in prison that can prove today that their convictions is wrongly convictions, but they can't get the evidence in that the courts know exists. And they'll listen to it because they file in PCRAs, but the courts have the hypocritical audacity to look in people's faces and say, well, we see the evidence have merit, but we don't have jurisdiction to entertain it because it's time-barred. With me, when I was pro se litigating, I argued, I gave the judge their oath to office when they said my evidence was time barred. And I'm saying, no, you have the inherent power of the court to adjudicate any matter that served the interest of justice.
1: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists.
4: Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X dot com.
0: So let's go back to the post-conviction litigation and how you ended up out here today, because it's kind of a miracle, really. Now, I'm going to rewind a little bit. During the initial investigation, as we mentioned, most of the eyewitnesses told police that the actual perpetrator was Edward, who went by the name Peanut Johnson. But that lead was never followed up on. And Johnson himself was murdered in 1997. So get this, everybody. In 2005, Peanut Johnson's father, Bruce Reese, submitted a fucking affidavit confirming that his son and a friend were responsible for William Catlett's death. For his own dad to do that, it's so freaking heavy. And, and Reese, the dad, wrote, and I quote, this is a quote, a direct quote, My son had always expressed regret that Mr. Riddick had sat in prison for a crime that he had nothing to do with, end quote. And back in 2019, all those years later, two other witnesses also signed affidavits saying that they saw Johnson shoot Williams. So that brings us almost to the present. What happens next? So, as we litigating
3: in court, and we wind up going to the conviction integrity unit, we had a PCRA pending. My lawyer, Emeka Igwe, came on board and worked with Georgetown professor Mark Howard and the three Georgetown students who were making of exoneree: Teller, Kendall, and Alex. They also worked with Desiree Perez' team, Jordan Sieve from Rock Nation and a Reed Firm, a powerful attorney, and they just extended all their resources to work with my attorney, Emeka Igwe. And we filed the petition in the CIU unit. They shot it down initially. We re-argued it because they acknowledged that I was innocent. But they were saying, well, we still feel that you may have entered into a conspiracy to commit this crime. So we're not going to entertain your petition. Larry Krasner, Patricia Cummins, they still dealing with relics of that culture of corruption sometimes. Patricia Cummins took on the case herself. When they turned over the files, we found out that a firearm was found in the alleyway. can't make this out. A broken rifle was found in the alleyway connected to the balcony where I was accused of being. And the DA tested it back then, found that it didn't work and that none of the projectiles came from this rifle. So they hid the evidence. They never turned that over to the defense. So when we found that, we amended it. And that was the means in which Patricia Cummins and the DA's office agreed to release me under.
0: I mean, it's amazing, but it's not shocking, right? Because it's the yeah. same damn thing we see over and over again. Until we fix the system, it's going to keep happening.
3: You know, and it's deep. Like with the PCRA statute, for example, Councilman David O., who wound up being one of my greatest supporters from Philadelphia, he passed two resolutions regarding my case overwhelmingly. One, to address the time limitations that the PCRA put on presenting evidence. But also he passed a resolution requesting Governor Wolf to pardon me Based on the record being saturated with
0: evidence of innocence. Listen, there's so many villains in this case, but there are even more heroes at the end of the day. Right? Yes. You got the Georgetown students. You got Meek Mill. You got Patricia Cummins. You got team you? Rock Nation. Oh, no. listen, I mean, what little I had to do with it, but thank <laughs> no, you for no. saying that. But yeah. Dan Slepian, I mean, you went from having the D team to the A team, right? Yes. And as a result, of course, justice has finally been done. Delayed but not denied, and that's a miracle. So, okay, thirty years—you finally step out to breathe free air. What was that moment like?
3: Oh man! Well, I haven't yet found a word to explain what I felt. The greatest moment was seeing my mother's face. You know, that woman been on the front line. She have. Did everything from going in front of the legislation, Harrisburg, or in front of the DA's office with horns, organizing and protesting nonstop. When they told me that I was going home in a half hour, that was the greatest moment, seeing her face. That felt greater than the actual feeling of me going home. And since I've been home, just seeing her enjoy the moment. What people don't know is that the burden that I had to carry all these years was that My father, which was one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life, my situation actually took his life. He always was able to protect his family. And my mother spoke about that on an interview, how his heart couldn't take it. Once they convicted me and there wasn't nothing that he could do for the first time to protect his children, she actually seen him deteriorate after he watched his son get railroaded in court. And he died shortly after that. He had a heart attack that took his life.
0: Wow. I think anyone who has a father or is a father can probably relate. And that's literally heartbreaking. I mean, it sounds like he was a great man. And all I can say is rest in power. And if you and your family can take any solace, it's in the fact that you're out here now and you've really hit the ground running. And what I mean by that is your work with the Emergency Response Foundation, or the ER Foundation for short. Can you tell us about the amazing work that you're doing?
3: So I've been home three months. I'm sitting right now doing this interview, sitting in my office, the office of the Emergency Response Foundation, which is an organization that I created while I was in prison. And is geared to address the most critical issues in two areas, criminal justice reform slash reborn and community development. It's amazing that 90 days ago, I was sitting in the cell, and today I'm sitting in the office with three rooms in it, law books. I'm looking at the law books right now, and the main people that's going to be working in here is exonerees on the Horton Brothers that was commutated by Fetterman. They hit the ground running, and that's the most beautiful thing about it. Everybody that's coming home, we are either on the front line helping to get other wrongly convicted out or just living normal lives.
0: So the Emergency Response Foundation, it's so many incredible people working to help other amazing people get the justice that they're seeking, that they deserve, and that they've been waiting for for decades and decades. There's going to be, I'm sure, a number of our listeners reaching out for help, and there's also going to be people reaching out who want to help, who can help, and who want to support the work of the foundation. So the best way to reach out or get involved is through the website, which is erfoundation19.com. So it's erfoundation19.com, but it'll be linked in our bio as well. So now we have a tradition on wrongful conviction, which is called closing arguments. And it's the part of the show that I look forward to each and every week because it works very simply just like this. First of all, I thank you again, Eric Riddick for just being who you are and for being an inspiration to me and so many other people, both out here and on the inside. Thank you for just being here and sharing your thoughts and your incredible story. And now I'm just going to kick back in my chair, turn off my microphone, leave my headphones on, and listen to whatever else you want to share for the closing arguments of our show.
3: So when I walked
0: out of the courtroom...
3: I basically said that my freedom is a further testimony that justice is in season. Me being on this show is testimony that justice is in season. Rock Nation, Meek Mill, getting involved in these cases, criminal justice reform is testimony that justice is in season. Georgetown University, the people at the grassroots becoming dissatisfied with the institutions that are supposed to serve the people like the judicial system, the police department, advocating dissatisfaction, it automatically compels change. So these are testimonies that justice is in season. I'm going to continue to fight on the front line as a vanguard with all those entities that I just mentioned. I want to thank everybody that was involved. I want to thank my attorney, Emeka Igwe, again, but I want to thank the grassroots and the ER Foundation, Emergency Response Foundation, is going to do everything in our power, to help assist in liberating those that's wrongly convicted and fighting for issues that's worthy of fighting for. Our foundation is gonna create documentaries on these issues. You have many men and women that's in prison that's wrongly convicted, totally actually innocent of any degree of guilt, but you have some that's innocent of the degree of culpability that they convicted for. So the ER Foundation has created what is called an alternative resolution service. Where we find those cases, we point out the evidence that mitigate the degree of culpability, and we take it to the DA's office, the Conviction Integrity Units, and we find an alternative resolution, many of which may be a plea to a lesser degree, because that's just as much of an egregious injustice as someone that's actually completely innocent. So we're gonna to try to address all the issues of injustice, and we're gonna build the foundation as we go along I want to salute, again, the Jason Flum Show and other shows and networks like this, because we always had a voice in prison, but we didn't have those outlets. So today, the Jason Flum Show and other shows this testimony that justice is in season. And the beauty about it is the universe is bent towards justice. So we always knew that these moments was going to come. I want to thank the Krasn administration for their courage. (laughs) I'll set on a panel discussion with Crass and, and a mic came to me and I said, I never thought that I'd be sitting comfortably next to the Philadelphia DA. But then I looked at him and I said, this is not the DA, this is the will of the people being manifested. You know, when the people is dissatisfied, the people is going to start networking and it's going to bring about change. I want to thank everybody, all the names that we don't know for being vanguards on the front line fighting for justice, fighting for community development and all of those things and I'm available anytime if you call on the ER foundation if our help is needed we are here any advice that people that's listening or that's involved want to give to the ER foundation we are open for any suggestions and any assistance and any help so again thank you for having me everybody have a blessed day
0: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio now to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our amazing production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music on this show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One.
1: Thank you.
4: Zumo Play.